And we're back. All right. Part two. Let's get back into it. Duncan with Defenders 11 from December 1973. Yeah, this issue is titled A Dark and Stormy Night, and that is Night with a K. <laughs> Just making sure. Uh, it doesn't really work. <laughs> this text joke doesn't work on audio. So That's true. The author is Steve Iglehart. The artist is Sal Buscema. The anchor is Frank Foley. The letterer is Tom Ors. The colorist is G. Rosos. And the editor is Roy Thomas. And I just am going to be super open and honest about this right now. Mm-hmm. This is a rough one, y'all. <laughs> like, from cover to cover. <laughs> but let's just jump into it. So, yeah. with the defeat of the Dread Dormammu and the capture of Loki, the tricky bro, uh, the world is reeling. The buildings are still in ruin. The people are so weak and, and distraught from recently being monsters. But people are alive. So I guess that's what matters most. Nick Fury walks up to Wanda, Scarlet Witch, and he's like, thank you so much. You saved my life and you saved everyone's life. And I I can't thank you enough. And she is just so rude to him. She's like, I didn't save you because I wanted to. I just did it because it's my job. God. (laughs) It's just a mutant, man. Like she's she knows that the thanks of human is is fleeting at best. Yeah, I know. But like he's just trying to be a good guy and he's he's just showing gratitude for everything that she did. So <laughs> anywho, that that is pales in comparison to what happens because Stephen Strange <laughs> with no reason or or antagonate and <laughs> yeah, yeah, without being antagonized yeah. or anything. Fury's just like, "Hey, uh hey defenders, what's going on with?" and Strange is like, "Nope." Yeah, he wipes his mind. He wipes the mind of everyone that on Earth so that, one, no one remembers what happened with this battle, and two, no one remembers who the Defenders are. He leaves and the event. Think- say? Go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that he leaves the Avengers' minds unwiped, and he just says that he doesn't want to get tricked into fighting them again, but I guess he's totally cool with fighting S.H.I.E.L.D., so... I'll yeah. mention that he also... Like, the power that Doctor Strange uh, presents here is insane. He he also fixes all the damage from the demon attack. Yeah, he full-on reverses so he basically, everything. He basically fixes all the damage done to the entire world. Actually, and Cosmos, because we saw this affecting other planets around the solar system and stuff. And he brainwashes everybody on all these planets and stuff with like a wave of his hand. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And he, he explains this to the Avengers that like, Oh, I don't want to battle you anymore. So I'm leaving your minds alone. And Iron Man's just like, sure, man, you do whatever you want. Just please don't mess with my brain. <laughs> like, I want to stay, have a say in the matter. <laughs> What are you going to say? No, he just wants to stay. He just wants to stay Iron Man, man. He doesn't yeah, want for to be sure. brainwashed. So it's always such a big bummer to me when they just fully reverse everything that's happened. It removes any like impact from all that they've accomplished. And I really expected it to come from Scarlet Witch, but I guess it's Stephen Strange's job this time. That's not for another 20 years or so. Oh, okay. So now Strange and the Defenders possess the full evil eye, and Doctor Strange is able to use it to send his astral form into Limbo to retrieve the Black Knight. And as we all know, Limbo is this massless, endless void that just is like outer space and it stretches off into infinity. But Strange goes back to the exact same spot where he saw the Black Knight floating. And since he's not there, he just gives up looking and he's like, I guess he's gone. (laughs) So he turns back home. And as he gets back home uh, and everyone else, just gets sort of ripped through this void. This mystical force pulls the defenders into the yeah. past. Before we start talking about the past, though, I just want to mention that there's no actually we there's no there's no specific reason why the evil eye should work to help the Black Knight. He's acting like the evil eye is the key to fixing the Black Knight, but that's a lie that Dormammu said. Right. But somehow it just worked. I think that they literally needed to give some sort of purpose as to everything that has just happened. So they're like, well, let's yeah. make this be some sort of space key or something. Yeah, I just, I just thought it was funny that um, they even, they're like, all right, we finally have the evil eye. We can help the Black Knight. And it's like, no, that's, that's not how it works, actually. They even mentioned that, too. Stephen Strange is like, ha, Dormammu made us like go and get this thing for him. But now it's working for us. Like, bro. I don't know how you're doing this. I'm pretty sure it's just your, like, boundless power <laughs> that you're utilizing. I mean, when all else fails, just remember that Doctor Strange is super powerful. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so. 
So so the team gets sucked into the past. Yeah, and they they appear again in the Middle East during the Crusades, to be specific. And there's some really heavy vilification of the Muslim and Islamic people through this book. They are not painted in a, a great light at all. I mean, just to give you a, a sense of how it is, uh, they call them Mohammedans a lot. Which is like way archaic term. You don't want to cool, – it's not a cool thing to do, no. FYI, to everybody. No. So the Defenders meet up with the Black Knight. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome, actually, because that's how we find out that we're in, um, like the the Middle East during the Crusades. Everyone's like, "What's going on? There's a catapult." Yeah. What's happening? And then the Black Knight just shows up, and he's like, "Dudes, we're in the. It's the 12th century. We're in the Crusades. <laughs> uh, give me a hand." And then he's being chased by like 50 dudes with swords and turbans, basically. Yeah, we have to survive long enough so that George Carlin can come back and rescue us. Aw, oh, dude. <laughs> I, I don't care. I love Bill and Ted. Moving on. I love Bill and Ted. You know, be excellent yeah. to each other. Yeah, and party on. Fair enough. So <laughs> they meet up, they get the recap, and then all of a sudden these giant gnomes show up. And the gnomes look, they're about the same size as Hulk, but they've entered a big head mode sheet. They look like they have the same face as Hulk, though. Like, yeah. Like, do you, do you see that? Like, the art is bit like... Like, Sal Buscema was really just, like, couldn't figure out a face for these gnomes and just said, I'll just do the Hulk. Yeah. He, so it's the one thing about the gnomes is that their hairstyle is different on, like, all the different gnomes that you run into. And there's even yeah. one point where you could say that they look like the Three Stooges, but it's a bit of a stretch. But either way, <laughs> they all have the face of the Hulk because that's your go-to angry monster face. Yeah, and they're all gray and have, like, weird arms and stuff. Yeah, and their heads are massive. I can't, I can't stress that enough. Yeah, they're gnomes, but they're also gigantic. There's a lot going on. And on top of that, they are all invincible. They are unfazed by lasers, or they can easily defeat the Hulk. And they're about to kill Stephen Strange and his crew, but he just, like, teleports them all to safety just a couple miles away. Yeah. And, and at this point, the Black Knight's like, yo, you were all summoned here by Merlin, the magician, and he needs your help to rescue King Richard the Lionheart from his brother, Prince John, as well as yeah. Mordred and his band of merry sorcerers, which actually turns <laughs> out to just be like one sorcerer. Yeah, but the Black Knight, it seems like Mordred is this time-hopping evil wizard, and uh, the Black Knight is basically Quantum Leap fighting him, powered by Merlin. That's speaking like the uh, setup. Speaking of time hopping wizards, what is Merlin doing here? I'm pretty sure that this was not his sort of era. Nah, Merlin's like in the 500s or something like that. I think. Yeah. But Merlin's just sort of generally out of time and magical, so it's fine. Yeah, he's it's, it, it, he's the first known case of Benjamin Button. Exactly. And like the Black Knight himself, like the original Black Knight is from the days of King Arthur and stuff. So it 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 worked. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll, it's fine. It's just so weird that you take these like fantasy characters and then you put them in like, oh, they're in the Crusades. They're trying to like yeah. well, pass because out the Catholic he's, religion. He's sort of time hopping to different eras in English history and stuff. Apparently, it's all going on in like the Marvel superheroes comic. Right. But I haven't read those, and I couldn't be bothered to. So I don't know exactly how it works. Yeah. Oh, also, there's a point where the Black Knight says that he is the Black Knight from the future as well as the Black Knight from the past at the same time. And it's so confusing. And it doesn't have anything to do with anything. They just decided to put that out there. Yep. So with that, everyone dons the cloaks of priests and they just sneak into the enemy castle. And yeah. it's partly because... I guess people don't really want to deal with the priests during this time period, but then also the guards are just super lazy. They don't want to check. They don't even bother to turn around. They're just like, oh, don't make eye contact. They're going to, like, talk to you or something. It's true. So, of course, once they get into the castle, they split up. You've got uh, Strange, Namor, and Hulk going one way, and then everybody else going to rescue the king. Mm -hmm. So B-team, as I refer to them, they reach the weakened King Richard pretty easily when all of a sudden three gnomes just jump out of nowhere on their way to go cross a bridge that's guarded by a billy goat. Yeah. And obviously they're really there to capture the defenders and they also are able to do it effortless. Yeah. There's even one part where the Black Knight makes a big to-do because he gets his sword back. And it's like some magical blade and he runs into battle 
he gets double punched in the jaw by two of these gnomes. It is hilarious. It's so funny. I love that in anything when someone makes a speech. It's like uh, Deep Blue Sea when Sam Jackson makes the speech only to be eaten by a shark. Also, spoilers for Deep Blue Sea. It happens like three times to this one character in Game of Thrones, too. It's it's pretty funny. (laughs) So if you see it happen to a character twice, you know there's a third time. I mean, that's usually how it goes with things that are funny, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is that is comedic law. <laughs> yeah, it's the rule of threes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Strange engages, meanwhile, in a magic duel with the evil sorcerer, uh, Chandu, and they find out that he's using the same magical art that Strange is using, but it's just this guy's mastered it in the past. So right. it's just kind of like a... It's not really like significant but it's strange just kind of has like a small world kind of moment (laughs) (laughs) and feeling sort of left out namor uh gets into a battle and by that i mean a giant rogue gnome tackles him out of the tower and into a nearby oasis and namor is so stoked like first he's stoked because he's like hey water i love water Yeah, that's how I get my power. And then he's double stoked because it turns out that all of these gnomes are just earth elementals. And when they fall into water, they just dissolve. (laughs) So uh, I'm not sure. But if you'll remember from earlier in this episode or part two, part one of this episode, there's a point where Namor delivers his strongest punch to the villain Atuma. And now he tops that. And what he does (laughs) is he punches the Oasis as hard as he can. They even the the writer makes a note at the bottom of the page just saying, like, this is canonically the strongest that Namor has ever punched anything. Yeah. So he punches this water so hard that it leaps out of the oasis and it floods the castle, just melting all of the evil gnome. And at the same time, everyone is pretty much freed. Yeah, well, it destroys all the bad guys. You know, yeah. it destroys all the gnomes and... and... The gnomes were what was beaten up, the defenders and stuff. The regular dudes are sort of no match for the defenders' team. Right. Except that Prince John has recovered the evil eye and threatens our team with it. Right. Except it doesn't last very long because Prester John shows up. And this is the other Santa Claus imposter. He's wearing, like, Santa Claus's robe, but then his helmet (laughs) looks like a lighthouse. Oh, yeah. He's got the... The fur thing on the side of his robe. Yeah, he really, he's doing a Santa look, and his, I'm not even kidding. His head looks like it's in a lighthouse, and the only piece of skin or, or human part of his body that's showing is his, like, white Sam Elliott mustache. Yeah, so it's awesome. everyone check out Prester John. This guy is rad as heck. <laughs> so the Santa Knight shows up, and he just takes back the evil eye, and mm-hmm. he uses it to uh, blast Prince John and Mordred with the beam. Not enough yeah. to like kill them, but just to know that yeah. they're defeated. Yeah. So as we mentioned, Prester John is like the keeper of the evil eye, but I guess he just only chose to do something now. Well, he, he, this is the point where he gets it. And now he's like, all right, uh, I'll peace out. I'll see you guys in 700 years where the, um, you know, I'll be the keeper of the eye. I'll see you guys in 700 years when the human torch awakens me again. And it's a time paradox. <laughs> exactly. Oh, he even calls that out. He's like, oh, I'm grabbing it for the first time again. Yeah. It's so weird, but it's fine. The guy looks too cool to even hate on anything. Yeah. So he says to them that he can send them back to their to their time period. And the Black Knight's just like, I'm going to stay. In the midst of this holy war, I just feel at home. And I got to say... And he's got more quantum leaping to do for uh, Merlin and stuff also. I just got to say, like, clearly he prefers to be in this terrible time period in human history and things he's just like ditching a bunch of things that he should care about but doesn't like things like penicillin or indoor plumbing or couches or not having to worry about the plague or uh, his friends and family <laughs> come on buddy they had couches back then <laughs> <laughs> if they had couches back then they were made out of granite i mean it's possible yeah that's probably true but so prester john the snow Pal- paladin switches the evil eye from laser blast to time travel blast, and then he just Mm -hmm. blasts the defenders back to the future. Yeah. And so seeing that the Black Knight is very happy in his... Yeah, back in the past, killing killing, uh, infidels and stuff. Yeah, so they realize that they can just finally throw away that ugly statue because he's alive just somewhere else. No, they keep it. (laughs) They, uh, They put it in their basement and then later just in the Black Knight's house. Fair enough, just as like a memory for him. Well, okay, so 
last episode, I, I told Drew that the Black Knight wouldn't that the Black Knight wouldn't actually come back to our time period and be unfrozen until 1982. Uh-huh. But that was wrong. Is it longer? Uh, he actually will be de-stoned in 1990. My goodness. <laughs> they sure took their time with this one. Yeah, Doctor Strange is involved with it, so we'll actually cover it on the podcast in uh, January 2017. So watch out for that. <laughs> I feel like it's less pressing to try and rescue him now, though, because yeah, no, he's chilling. fine. He's fine in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, also, this comic just ends with everyone telling Strange, well, everyone except for Valkyrie telling Strange that they're quitting the Defenders. And yeah, it's awesome. Strange is just talking about how amazing their team was and how great everything is while Silver Surfer and Namor and the Hulk fly off into the sky. And I don't think that they all have that power. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, Namor can fly. He's got wings on his feet. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> Hulk can fly. Awful, man. Yeah, I'm telling. I'm, I'm not. I don't lie. I don't lie, Duncan. Yeah, I tell the truth for sure. Uh, and then uh, the Hulk can jump away. So that's like he basically flies with jumping. It is a weird shot if you don't realize the extent yeah. of these people's power because they are just mid soaring off into the sky. <laughs> but yeah, while they do that, and Strange reminds us of how amazing our purchasing decisions of buying these comics is, we come to a close. Yeah, the true end of the Avengers Defenders War. And now we go on to other adventures in Defenders 12, February 1974. The Titan Strikes Back. Len Wein, or yeah, Len Wein, writer. Sal Buscema and Jack Abel, artists. Petra Goldberg, colorist. Charlotte Jeter, letterers. So Len Wein is actually a pretty well-known comics writer. He uh, created the Swamp Thing and Wolverine. Oh, wow. Okay. And in about a year, he'll oversee the reboot of the X-Men, and, and, and then he'll create uh, Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus before handing it over to Chris Claremont. Oh, man, this guy's awesome. He's pretty good. He's a pretty, like, big writer, you know? That's so cool. Those are some of the best characters, like, that withstood the test of time. Yeah. And again, not talking about Gambit, because he's just a really cool costume. <laughs> I don't want to talk about Gambit. And the bow staff. But... I, don't want, I don't want to talk about Gambit. Okay. Um, so we start with the Hulk just chilling in the forest. He's got like some flowers that he picked. He's so happy. He's so Frankenstein. Yeah. Total Frankenstein. Except Frankenstein gets attacked by villagers and the Hulk gets attacked by the goddamn forest. (laughs) Like all the trees and rocks are attacking the Hulk and the Hulk is confused and gets really angry and then just starts busting up the forest, but it's no use. It's hard to try and win a battle against a forest. Yeah. And eventually... It turns out that the forest is being controlled by Zemnu, who we'll remember as the evil mind-controlling children's television host from, De- from Defenders number three. Uh, Zemnu zaps the Hulk unconscious, but not before the Hulk sends a mental message to dumb magician, a.k.a. Doctor Strange. So back at the Sanctum Sanctorum, uh, Valkyrie is moping, and Doctor Strange comes in and gives her a sweet new sword called Dragon Fang to serve as a replacement for the Black Knight sword, which she returned last issue. I'm glad she got her own sword, though. That, like, yeah. I think makes her a more fully fleshed-out character, as opposed to just borrowing other people's stuff. For sure. But the gift is bittersweet because she has decided to leave the Defenders. <laughs> she just bails. It's like a diamond dash. Well, it's like the Defenders isn't a real team. They don't have a a charter or something like the Avengers do. It's just kind of drop in, drop out. And she wants to spend some time learning more about, you know, the body she's currently inhabiting and more about Barb, you know, more about Barbara Norris and stuff. And but as she's explaining this, Doctor Strange goes into a trance and he receives the message from the Hulk. And so Valkyrie quits quitting for the moment and goes to help rescue the Hulk. And they fly out to where he was attacked, but they don't find anything. And instead, they magically go incognito and in- investigate the nearby town of Pluckettville, where after being rebuffed by townsfolk, they eventually meet the nice mayor, Amos Moses, who shows them around town. The brand new city hall, the statue of Colonel Bradley Pluckett, the town founder, the alley that leads to animated pipes and a deadly killdozer. Wait, what? <laughs> You know, every town's got that. I've just not found the one in San Francisco. Sure. Uh, the the animated pipes are no match for Doctor Strange's magic. Uh, oh, powers of celestial worth. This faithful one beseeches thee. 
hurl thy skyborne fire to earth that made an eye yet might yet be free and then uh the killdozer is no match for valkyrie's sweet new sword and she totally just cuts it right in half it's always good but, to show your power yeah i mean we might as well see that this magic sword works right yeah please Unfortunately, the town is no match, or unfortunately, that the, the uh, heroes are no match for the angry townsfolk who knock the heroes out and then laugh over their unconscious forms because they're huge jerks. Meanwhile, as this all is going on, uh, a mysterious form or a mysterious guy in like trench coat and hat and all that stuff knocks on the door of the sanctum looking for Doctor Strange, but he isn't home. And, you know, whatever, surely nothing will come up, will come of this at all. <laughs> I mean... You've read enough of these comics to know that sometimes nothing will come of it. Yeah, usually, though. And yeah, back in Pluckettville, the mayor reveals himself to be, uh, yep, it's Zemu. What? Yeah, if you guess it, you're pretty smart. <laughs> Zemu reveals that the new city hall is actually a huge dang rocket ship, and he's going to steal all the mind-controlled people of the town and rocket them back to his planet to repopulate it. Gross. <laughs> he also mentions that he's mind-controlled the Hulk, and while Zemnu monologues, Doctor Strange reaches out to the Hulk and breaks that mind control. It turns out that the Hulk was inside the statue of the town founder all along. How did he even get in there? He probably just got lost. Yeah, he's, he, Zemnu sealed him in there, man. He's got mind control stuff. I don't know. <laughs> so Hulk and Zemnu fight, and it goes real bad for Zemnu real fast. Zemnu tries to fly away and escape, but when he does, but when he does the Hulk is like, no dice and throws the rocket ship at the fleeing form of Zemnu, and both explode with a thwaroom, and Zemnu is gone forever. Or at least until he becomes an occasional She-Hulk antagonist in the late 80s and early 90s. But that's a story for another day. It's true. And this one ends with some of my favorite Hulk dialogue. So the Hulk uh, realizes that since Dr. Strange and Valkyrie came to help him, they're his friends. And Strange says, We are your friends, Hulk. Uh, shout out to the Worst Idea of All Time podcast. And, Val and Valkyrie says, and we hope the feeling is mutual. And Hulk says, Hulk doesn't know what you chew Al means. But if you are Hulk's friends, Hulk is yours. Come, friends. Let us go away from this dumb place. <laughs> and I just love it when the Hulk calls things dumb. Yeah. He really has the best names for people and places. It's true. So let's move on to, oh man, Giant Size Defenders number one Yeah, from July 1974. This issue is called The Way They Were, and so being a Giant Size Defender, the pages are much bigger. It's like a busy world of Richard Scarry book in the hands of a baby. <laughs> I just want to also say that, so these Giant Size comics are were a big thing in kind of the mid-70s Marvel. They made a, a, a whole bunch of these for most of their... Um, mo Everybody gets at least one giant size issue, all the, all the superhero imprints and stuff. Mm -hmm. They cost uh, 60, 60 cents instead of 20 cents, and we're about 68 pages long. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'd have key story turning points. They'd feature a crossover with a hot new property, or they'd, ha they'd be just a way to capitalize off a new hot property, which is kind of what this episode is because it's all reprints. Yeah, I would want my 60 cents back after reading yeah. this one. So probably the two most famous giant sizes are uh, Giant Size X-Men 1, which is the new team with Storm and Wolverine and stuff. Okay. And uh, then Giant Size Man-Thing, because holy crap, the name of that title, of that copy, <laughs> Giant Size Man-Thing. <laughs> I would pick that up. You just got to know. And so also, usually not, like, not in the main story, and, and so it's not sort of mentioned, but... Also in this in this issue was a reprint of a of a Silver Surfer adventure from Fantastic Four Annual number five where the surfer fights a sentient computer. Okay, yeah, that's not here. So that's why, like this, if you look on the cover, like the Silver Surfer is there, but there's, he's not in the comic at all. <laughs> and so that's just sort of how that works, basically. <laughs> that's good to know. So if you're gonna yeah. pick up this issue, uh, don't do it for the Silver Surfer. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, all, and, and the reprints of it, and the reprints of this comic, because it's all reprints mostly, is uh, Incredible Hulk number four from 1962, Submariner 41 from 1955, and Strange Tales number 145 from 1966. Which is actually a good sorry, one. Can, yeah, sorry, Duncan, go no, ahead. No, it's okay. So the way they were was written by Tony Isabella, was artistried by Jim Starlin, was anchored by Al Milgram, was lettered by Dave Hunt, 
was colorist-sized by Jim S. and Petra G. and edited by Roy Thomas. <laughs> so following their battle with Zemnu, the Titan, Valkyrie, Strange, and Hulk are all returning to the Sanctum Sanctorum, where they meet up with Clea and Wong. And right away, this comic looks awesome. The art is so good. This might be the best drawn comic that's been on the show yet. It's Yeah, I, I love how Starlin draws... Uh... Clea and Valkyrie, especially yeah. like they're really like swan like or something like that. Like it's a really cool way of of making of, of 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 drawing these women to be really like beautiful or something like that. I really like think it's cool. What I really appreciate is he's got a, such an attention to detail for all of the characters, but more so. And this is sort of what stands out the most to me is his backgrounds are so detailed and so, have so much like care put into them. And and it really makes everything feel like a, a complete image, as opposed to just you know the you you'll see comics from time to time where the background People is just, just like kind of in space, yeah. yeah. But that also kind of makes things more of a letdown when you realize that it's just three reprints of old comics tied together with some new pages to link them under a new story. Yeah. So that new story being that every, everyone gets to the mansion and Valkyrie and Clea are talking about how weird it is that strange and the defenders are like all of these crazy beings. And Clea is like, let me, let me cue you in. And so she uses this magical spell to show Valkyrie the past of, of three of these heroes. The first one is the Hulk with uh, banished to outer space. So this is, yeah, we don't have to go too in-depth on these ones just because they're old, Duncan. I don't want to like... No, for sure. I'm going to do a quick recap. There's just some things that I wanted to point out. One, this is yeah. when Hulk is at his most Frankenstein's monster-esque. He's such sure. a slow lumber. And the whole premise of the comic is tricking the Hulk into a rocket. Um, he has a, a buddy who's just like... They refer to him 90% of the time as a teenager. They don't give him a name, but his name is Rick. Yeah, Rick Jones. Yeah, so Rick Jones is entrusted with protecting the Hulk when the government pulls up and is like, oh, we need you to get the Hulk in this rocket. And he's like, cool, it pops. I ain't no rat. And then the government's like, uh, it's for America. So he's like, dang it, all right. And he ends up tricking the Hulk into a rocket. And then Hulk goes to space, gets powers to be the Hulk all the time. And now Rick has the ability to control the Hulk with his mind. Yeah, but we move on. The... Yeah, this is a. I just want to say this is a super early Hulk story. Yeah, this is like when the Hulk, when he was turning into the Hulk like at night. Yeah, he's got some werewolf powers for his Hulk ability. Yeah. like it wasn't even like based on like being angry yet and stuff. It's crazy. And and that's kind of like one of the problems that I have with the format of this comic is that it just gets to the end of the episode of the issue and it's just leaves off at such a cliffhanger that it's like so you just told me a story about like one part of this thing like this doesn't it yeah. doesn't make any sense but they don't care uh they they cut back to the sanctum sanctorum where the hulk is just eating some chicken and he just vanishes into nothingness <laughs> and now we're back with clea showing valkyrie a brief brief glimpse into namor's past called birds of prey and if you thought that comic with the Hulk being launched into space was out of place, this one is even more ridiculous. Namor is just like flying around and he gets into a fight with a bomber plane, but the entire time he thinks it's a bird, but like it shoots bullets at him and it's got bombs underneath it. And he's just so staunch in his belief that like, oh, this bird can sting and this bird's eggs explode. So he beats up the plane and the plane and him crash back down to the the ocean. And when he regains consciousness, he's with his mom, who has hung up the fuselage in their house. And it turns out that Namor took out a Nazi plane, and his mom's very proud of him. That's it. That's the <laughs> I, end. Why did you put this yeah. comic in your flashback? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't build onto Namor's past. I don't get it. <laughs> I just want to say that I, I, I mentioned this in an earlier episode, but... This 1950s arts like this this issue is from this story is from 1955 mm -hmm. and I find Bill Everett's Namor art to be extremely disturbing. It's <laughs> like, the most disturbing part is the fact that Namor looks like a an elf like a dark elf or whatever. Yeah, and everyone else looks like sea monkey aliens. It's yeah, his, his mom's got these huge black eyes and stuff. It's it's no good. I it's I don't like it very much at all. Do you think Namor is adopted? No, he's half human. He's half blue guys. Oh, okay. That's good to know. He he clearly takes everything from his father's side then. 
Yep. <laughs> so back at Strange's pad, uh, Strange senses that Namor has disappeared, and he realizes that Clea has used the wrong spell and is forcing <laughs> all of these dudes to relive their memories. Ah, uh, you blew so it. So he's racing off to go warn Clea. But at that exact same moment, he starts to vanish into nothingness because they're telling his story to catch a yeah. magician, which is the one that I loved on the last podcast with yeah. Mr. Rasputin. That's how I knew I wanted to have you on this episode, yeah, Duncan. This is classic. <laughs> Anytime that I can talk about Mr. Rasputin. So, again, this guy's going around stealing government secrets and using black magic. Mr. Strange catches on and gets shot by Mr. Rasputin's gun. And then he comes back and teams up with his cloak to beat Mr. Rasputin, yep. Yep. and they win. But so now, <laughs> now we're on to part four, which is called The Once and Again's Dooms. Weird name, but anywho. Yep. So Hulk, Namor, and Strange are all in these alternate reality, fighting their past. Hulk is fighting a fox, Namor is fighting some planes, and Strange is face-to-face -face with a shadow version of Mr. Rasputin. And again, Mr. Rasputin is the best. He just pulls out some shadow gun and shoots Strange with it, and he actually hits him. He does, like, legitimate damage to Strange. So Strange puts up his shield and is like, ah, oh, dip, I'm in trouble. So he summons Hulk and Namor together, and they start, like, battling. And the rest of the art is all new, and it's amazing. Like, there's all these cool shots of them falling through different dimensions or slamming through exploding fighter planes. Yeah. And also, Strange is in super big trouble because Mr. Rasputin still has that gun. <laughs> so... Namor and Hulk show up. Namor punches the Shadow Rasputin so hard he shatters into glass. It's a really cool effect. And then the three teleport back to safety and they tell Clea what happened. She learns a valuable lesson about listening or something. And the Valkyrie has a real tabloid moment of like, wow, superheroes, they're just like us. They shot for groceries and destroy, destroy Nazi fighter planes just like regular people. And uh, I just got to be like, sorry for the clip show. Have no fears, we've got stories for years. <laughs> and that's the end of that episode. All right. Oh, I also want to say, um, at the end of that giant-sized Defenders, the, I, 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 I like the art a lot, but there was one problem I kind of had, which is that I feel like Doctor Strange got drawn extremely Charles Bronson-y in that story, <laughs> as opposed to kind of Vincent Pricey, which I kind of prefer. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely this guy's own take. Yeah, it's, you know... It's just sort of a personal preference for your Doctor Strange art, whatever. Right. But that takes us to Defenders 13 from May 1974. For sale, one planet slightly used. Len Wein writer, Sal Buscema artist, Klaus Jensen, or Klaus Jansen, inker. Glynis Wein colorist, John Costanza letterer. Okay, so the Defenders are chilling in the Sanctum Sanctorum, this is the uh, Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, and the Hulk. What's left of the Defenders. Right. Doctor Strange is showing off his shrunken head collection as Hulk and Valkyrie pretend to be interested. Like, Hulk <laughs> is, like, messing with, like, a little gong thing. That's pretty funny. That's great. And before they uh, just decide to break out the exploding kitten's deck and have some fun or something, there's a different kind of explosion. Ha-ha. <laughs> the front door. And a guy dressed like a terrible version of Batman walks in through the smoke. Is it Batman? No. Oh. He wants to talk, but that, but Val and the Hulk fight him for a while because he blew up the door. Fair enough. Yeah. Eventually, Doctor Strange calms things down, and the dude introduces himself as Nighthawk. And Nighthawk looks pretty dumb, Duncan. Yeah, he, I mean, he looks like if a regular dude tried to make a superhero costume. <laughs> also, well, like... I gotta say, like, Nighthawk was able to blast down the door, but the entirety of the Avengers were not able to make it past, like, the front gate. Well, I mean, they did a... I mean, Thor break, broke down the door with his hammer, too, so I, the defenses might be still recovering from Thor's attack. <laughs> it's hard to tell. Yeah. But so, you know, Hawkeye, I just want to kind of go into it, because he's actually going to be a, a recurring character in this series. Right now, he's got a light blue and black spandex, like, superhero suit with a brown cape that sweeps off his shoulders... He's got a black cowl that has an actual bird beak over his nose. It's so dumb. And for the rest of time, basically, the Hulk is going to call him Bird Nose, and the Hulk is right to do so. Yeah, definitely. But so Nighthawk explains his problem. He's actually a former supervillain, a member of the Squadron Sinister, 
a villain team that is obviously a ripoff of the Justice League with Nighthawk as Batman, human color wheel Dr. Spectrum as the Green Lantern, refugee from a universe contained within the first atom destroyed by the first cyclotron experiment, Hyperion as Superman. So dumb. And this dude named the Wizard as the Flash. That Wait, no, is, no, I take it back. That's so dumb. That dude is named the Wizard. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it meant what it means now. Back then. It's got to be dang close. I can't imagine a time where it didn't also mean the verb to is. Yeah, I, I have to imagine so. But I mean, I don't know, man. It's like that. Um, Have you ever seen that like Batman thing where they talk about like boners and like boners are like actually like practical jokes or something like yeah. that? Well, I they do. Just you, talks I, about boners all the time. <laughs> you might remember the last time that I was on, I really called out Dum Dum Dugan for claiming that he was a wizardoo. So I that's think that there might be something else going on here. It could be. That's all. That's a good point. Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he just really had to go. Yeah. But anyhow, so the Nighthawk has retired from. So Nighthawk has retired from supervillainy. Yeah. But he was called back by his running buddies because they've got a new benefactor, Nebulon, the Celestial Man. He is so cool looking. Nebulon is crazy. He's, so he's yeah. Go well, ahead. I was just gonna say. He he has like this flowing bleach white hair. His entire body is made out of gold. He's right. got like except a... for ex- except for his leotard, which is black, like covered in like either stars or jewels or something. Yeah, I don't know it's how a... much of it is stars because his entire everything is shiny. He's just covered with yeah. his little like shiny animation like things. Yeah, like things. Yeah. <laughs> But so that same black leotard, black leotard it's a long sleeve leotard. It's got a V-neck down to his belt. Super deep. Yeah. His belt is maybe a foot thick and just sort of like a silver band around his torso. And he's got these big silver gloves, too. Yeah. He's the most perfect entity ever. He's so awesome. <laughs> and, yeah, no one's more fabulous than, than Nebulon. But yeah. so it turns out that Hyperion has sold Nebulon Earth. And I'm not sure how that works exactly, but anyhow, they force Nighthawk to hear their pitch, and afterward, Nighthawk has decided to seek help to stop them, the, sin- the Squadron Sinister. The yeah, Avengers, yeah, he tried to talk to the Avengers, but the Squadron and Nebula had thought of this, and they've made Nighthawk appear invisible to all the Avengers members. <laughs> and so, while ghosting around the Avengers mansion, he, he heard a recap of the Defenders Avengers War. And decided to seek out Doctor Strange. And so he was the trench-coated dude from last issue. Oh, snap, it did pay off. Yeah. But so apparently his, um, his levels of trying to, his stages of trying to talk to somebody are one, knock politely, two, blow up the door. Super reasonable. I mean, he followed stage one. I guess. But so anyhow, Nighthawk explains the evil, the evil scheme. Uh, Nebulon wants to colonize Earth. But Earth isn't quite right yet, so uh, they're going to melt the polar ice caps. Sure, makes sense. And, and flood the Earth. It's going to be bad. There's a big laser on the North Pole right now that's going to start melting stuff. It's and just he needs so their... you n- never forget that they're the bad guys. Yeah, it's a giant death laser. Yeah. But so, um, as Nighthawk explains this, he suddenly gets teleported away back to the North Pole. It's time for the fight. But uh, first, Doctor Strange calls Namor to help so that it was a four-on-four fight in the Arctic. And, Not so much calls. Well, I mean, he sort, of like sh- he sort of shows up and like teleports him away, basically. Yeah. But man, a lot's been going on in Namor since we last saw him. He has his like, super outfit now, right? Yeah. He's apparently taking care of this race of amphibians someplace, and... He's got a new full-body super suit, which I'm not in favor of. Like, Namor should just wear briefs, if you ask me. <laughs> like, I'm not, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, it's, it fits his style. It's not that I'm attracted to Namor. It's just that, like, it seems weird when he's wearing pants. I don't know. I wouldn't want to wear pants if I was swimming. It's true. But so now he's got this, like, like full-body, like, black suit, also with a V-neck that's open to his open to his belly button, and these weird like wings that like come off his back, like go to his wrists or something like that for gliding. I guess it's weird that he suddenly has it, and everyone sort of remarks on it. it's like, "Hey, cool new suit, Namor." And actually, in Defenders, uh, Defenders Twelve, they sort of said, "Hey, wondering why Namor doesn't have his cool new suit yet? Uh, it's because this part of the comic hasn't caught up with the other part, or something like that." Right. 
And just to answer their question, no, I wasn't wondering. Ah, uh, you were wondering, I can tell. <laughs> but eventually they managed to sort of browbeat Namor into helping out. He doesn't want to. Yeah. Because that's Namor's thing. But eventually he does, and they all fly up to the, to the Arctic, where they find the Squadron Sinister mid-ice cap destruction. And it's a big fight time. And everybody squares off like you'd think, basically. Um, Hyperion and the Hulk sort of super strength it out. And it's a doctor battle with Doctor Spectrum versus Doctor Strange. Yep. And then uh, Namor fights the Wizard. And that guy's still named the Wizard, and it's ridiculous. And he then uh, a really, like, good get. This is, like, his, well, for me, his intro fight is against Namor. Like, that's a big name to go up against. It's true. And he just gets his butt kicked pretty oh, effectively. Oh, yeah. He's just a jobber. Yeah. And then meanwhile, uh, Valkyrie tries to free Nighthawk from inside this force bubble, but is not effective in doing yeah. so. And, like, the fight goes pretty well. Like, Hulk, you know, everybody, all the defenders beat their opponents, but then Nebulon shows up and just jams everybody in a force bubble. And he's clearly outclassed everyone, and it's bad. And it sort of ends with Nebulon promising to destroy us all, which takes us to your issue, Duncan. Yeah, so Dynamic Defenders, issue 14. Uh, you mentioned that we weren't going to be doing both of the titles or the multiple titles, but this one's got two, and they're Please. so good. Yeah, that's fine. So the cover title is Nebulon, the man who bought the Earth. And the inside <laughs> one is, and who shall inherit the Earth? Yeah. Like, I think you're, like, maybe getting a bit of a head of yourself. But, okay, <laughs> Len Wein is the writer, Sal Bushima, and Dan Green are the artists. Uh, Glynis Will Ween is the colorist. Artie Samek is the letterer. Roy Thomas is the editor. And Irving Forbush is the kibitzer. <laughs> and I got to say, now that they've done and switched away from, like, the really weird intros, I'm glad yeah. Irving Forbush is back. Just to kind of <laughs> change it up a bit. Yeah. I just want to say also, I don't know. I, I want to say this now because I don't know if we're going to have much more of them. But, um... So Artie Semek is back lettering, and he's been one of these guys that's been lettering these comics since forever. Um, and he'll actually um, pass away in February 1975. This comic's from July 1974. So okay. this is some of his final work as like an, as a letterer. And I think it's just sort of good to, I don't know, you know, call out these guys that were such a big, that were even just sort of an, in a, not in a flashy position, but still a big part of these comics being created. You know, just writing the actual letters and titles and stuff while these comics, that when they pass on, it's good to sort of, you know, call them, call them out, I guess, you know? Yeah, definitely, like, credit where credit's due. Yeah, I mean, the, like, Artie Simak is one of these names that we've said a lot since the comics started, you know? So, definitely. whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, Perfect Being, that is Nebulon, has trapped the Defenders and Nighthawk inside these giant bubbles. He is uh, in the process of evicting the entire human race. When Hyperion wakes up from his Tukus whooping, <laughs> and, and he decides to give us his entire backstory, unprovoked, might I add. No yeah. He just goes on a giant tangent. Apparently. No one cares, Hyperion. Get really, out of here. Apparently he's this dude who lived inside an atom, and then he was summoned by the Grand Master, which is a super generic name, to do yep. battle with Thor. And of course he lost. Of course. <laughs> Thor traps him into a bubble that is a bubble of glazed sand, which we all know is Thor's go-to finisher. <laughs> and then Thor just chucks him into outer space. And that's why he hates all of humanity. Valid. And... <laughs> Eventually, uh, he meets up with Nebulon. He explains uh, Nebulon explains that he's a galactic geologist. It's which weird. Is like, yeah, because he is so attractive for being a geologist. He should be like a galactic supermodel, like hey, a super hey. model. Geologists can be hot. Let's not uh, make fun of geologists. They do important work. Fair enough. And they make it look so attractive while they do it. <laughs> so. <laughs> He meets up with Nebulon. Nebulon's like, I'm looking for materials to sustain my homeworld. And Hyperion's like, well, I have this thing called the Earth, and I can sell it to you. And now you know the rest of the story, which is Ooh. a sick Paul Harvey reference for your podcast. Thanks, man. Keep it current. Yeah, exactly. I really wish that they would have mentioned a price when they were talking about how much he sold the Earth for. It's that's true. Just, that's just something that I, like, a million dollars? Like, yeah, it's... They definitely are sort of just betraying these uh, Squadron Sinister members as just kind of crazy and murderous. Right. Instead of being like, oh, yeah, but like we'll be like kings of Chicago or, the, you know, we'll be like super rich on an alien planet. 
after this, you know? Yeah, I get that. But the thing is, like, the the, the fact that he entered into a deal. Like, no, I'm saying, I'm saying they aren't saying that. They right. aren't saying, oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we'll be, like, the you know, Hyperion will make us rich and powerful after he rules the Earth. They're just kind of like, yeah, man, we sold out our Earth, and that's sort of just how it goes. We're going to kill everybody. Yeah. There's just, no, like, end game or anything like that. I guess that's what sort of makes, like, the most evil villain is just that sort of reckless, wanton destruction. Yeah, but it's not, like, a relatable villain, you know? No, like, there's no, not at there's all. There's no reason for it. These guys are just kind of jerks. Right. They're jerks, and they have not thought out, like, the end game at all. Yeah. So, yeah. Nebulon launches the bubble with the Defenders and Nighthawk into space and they're all freaking out and they're trying to break out and Nighthawk is just like why don't you just all attack the same point in the bubble and so they do and they break out and when they get back to Earth uh, the Defenders find Nebulon in the Sinister Squadron melting the polar ice caps with a laser because they're wicked bad Yep. and the Defenders try to fight Nebulon but he summons a massive snow golem the snow golem which is a time saver that I'm using now to tell you about my new time saver uh, so the Snowlum has regenerative yep. powers, but he can't regenerate his entire body when the Hulk throws it in front of Chekhov's laser. <laughs> and now the real fight starts with yeah. Nebulon. And Nebulon is no slouch. He's teleporting all around. He's shooting out these like rose red lasers that are super cool. And then like Strange and the Submariner get like a couple hits in and then Nebulon just like calls time out. <laughs> he needs a break. Because uh, he didn't expect to get punched so hard. Yeah, he falls. He totally through. loses his. He loses control. He does really quickly. And he's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa! I was not signed up. So he he calls To, and he falls to his knee and just starts glowing and like losing his form. Uh, and he turns out to be a giant crazy space fish. And, Gross. Yeah, and you know some might even say he's more attractive now as the giant crazy space fish. He's got this. He's like a toxic green piranha. He's got these two antenna tendrils coming off of his head. He's got a, like a, a, a bunch of tentacles and like yeah. a remora mouth and bug eyes. Yeah, his mouth is really cool. He's got one giant mouth that's got like an endless row of teeth. And then inside it, it is a smaller mouth, which I feel is almost more terrifying. <laughs> and so now the real, real fight with Nebulon can start. But the real, real fight doesn't even last that long because Nighthawk just jumps onto the laser and starts blasting Nebulon with a laser. And Nebulon gets like a, a blast back. But really, Nebulon is so overwhelmed by the power that he just implodes. And when he yeah. implodes, he takes the the knockoff Justice League with him. And it's <laughs> the day is saved because Nighthawk doesn't respect the unspoken bond created when someone calls timeout. Right. Yeah, no, he totally violates the, the, the putting one hand flat and then another hand up to the bottom of that hand move. Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, uh, so because Nebulon gets the laser blasts fired off, the laser that Nighthawk is on explodes. And Nighthawk now, like, he doesn't die, but he's like... No, he does soon. die, dude. No, he totally he, dies. He says, like, he's... Doctor Strange says, like, oh, he's not dead but he will be if we don't do something oh yeah but he's basically dead he's pretty much dead as, as far as like the like the drama if there was music playing it would be like really sad i'm dead music right now yep and so dr strange says like well since he saved our lives should give him a small part of our lives in return and so they like link hands and i don't understand what they're doing are they like actually giving him some of their life, like, are they going to die sooner now? Are they weaker? Is there no actual cost yeah. to this sacrifice? I guess nobody really they don't. That. It doesn't seem like it. I think it's just kind of like your general sort of join hands and our powers combine and we save the guy. You know, like the yeah. end of Guardians of the Galaxy, something like that. Definitely. So Nighthawk is saved and he asked to join the defenders and Namor does another heel turn. And he's just like, you know, Namor's not a bad guy he's like kind of reminds me of vegeta from dragon ball z where he's not bad he's just like a grumpy guy and i mean namor isn't a good guy or a bad guy he's his own guy yeah you know? fair enough so namor leaves the team potentially forever and everyone's too psyched by nighthawk joining that they don't even notice namor like fly off yeah well he totally says like uh he says don't call me again or i won't or when i come i won't be a friend yeah and then hulk says to that like oh i don't care you're my new friend, Nighthawk. Like, he's totally replaced yeah. him. 
Fishman goes away angry, but Hulk does not care. Birdnose will be Hulk's new friend. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And uh, that's the wrap on that. We got a new teammate, and we lost a new teammate. That'll be good. You know, and I just want to say, I usually give recaps and stuff for when, when we'll see the villain next when they're destroyed. But I'm not even going to bother with Nebulon because we'll be seeing him again soon enough. Oh, man. I hope he's in either his sexy form or his sexy fish form. It's going to be good. <laughs> but now we jump back in time, ironically enough, to Marvel premiere number 12 from November 1973. Portal to the Past. Oh, man. This is like double back in time. Yep. Steve Englehart and Mike Frederick writers. Frank Brunner artist. The Krusty Bunkers inker, uh, John Costanza letterer, Frank Brunner colorist, and a reminder that the Krusty Bunkers are a collective group of inkers headed by Neil Adams this time. So this is the first real issue after Doctor Strange has become Sorcerer Supreme, and he's meditating about it out in the Mexican desert as Clea and Wong show up on a jeep. Awesome. Yeah, apparently he hasn't checked in since before the showdown with Shumagorath. <laughs> and instead, he's gotta leave been... a note. It's true. And instead, he's just been thinking about his new power, Sorcerer Supreme, and reflecting on the events that happened last episode of our podcast. But eventually, he does teleport them all back to New York and politely teleports the Jeep back to the car rental place. I was going to ask. <laughs> no stone unturned. Yeah. So back in Greenwich Village, uh, Stephen has a talk with Clea and officially takes her on as his disciple. Is like apprentice, Padawan, whatever in the art of magic. Poor Wong. You know, Wong has a Wong has a role. He has a job. Yeah, watering the plants and paying rent. It's important to do it. <laughs> so he assigns her some reading, and then he goes back to his old habits, which is uh, not telling her when he's about to do something extremely dangerous. Yeah. And so he heads off to uh, check and see what Baron Mordo is up to. Now he can just say it's part of Clay's training. What, to not tell her that he's doing stuff? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so here's where we find out that Mordo, where, what Mordo is actually barren of. And it's a town in freaking Transylvania. Of course. And apparently it's like 19th century Transylvania because everybody's dressed all old time and there's stagecoaches and stuff. And Strange asks a local guy about Mordo and is attacked, but is then led to a Romany caravan by a dude with a sweet kerchief and mustache named Stavros. Nice. Where Strange meets a beautiful lady named Lilia. And they call themselves gypsies, so I'm going to call them gypsies. That's basically how I'm going with the political correctness of this situation. Yeah. Because um, she is queen of the gypsies and entrances him with a sexy magic dance that also involves, like, hangmen and magic eyes and stuff. It's crazy. It's the only way that you can sort of attract Stephen Strange is with your own sort of magical presentation. For sure. So now Doctor Strange is completely entranced and under the power of Lilia. And it turns out she's also an old, an old enemy of Mordo as well. Mordo seduced her and stole the Book of Cagliostro, her people's most treasured item, and now she wants it back. So using Doctor Strange's power, they go to Mordo's castle which is a pretty standard, like, Eastern European castle, except it's floating, like, a thousand feet in the air. Yeah, I feel like that these comics are before that they got really crazy with their architecture. Like, if you see, like, the Stark Tower, it's just, like, a three-story square building. It's true. Like, actually, for the Fantastic Four, they canonically placed them in this place called the Baxter Building, which I think is a real building in, in New York City. And... In like the 80s, they had to blow it up and rebuild it because the Baxter build because the actual Baxter building was too small to really be sort of a grand edifice for this big super <laughs> team. You know what? In thinking about it, Strange's Loft is like the most creative building in these comics, and it's really just like weird stuff inside and a dope roof. Yeah, well, like I said, and it's weird because it's like I said an episode or two ago, it's an actual street address. You can look it up oh, on yeah. Google Maps and stuff, and it doesn't have that window, which is like. Man, it was like finding out Santa wasn't real, I gotta say. Oh, man. <laughs> but so, Mordo's castle's flying, and uh, Doctor Strange fly, flies himself and Lilia up there. Um, and they find the, uh, the book, the Book of Cagliostro. But before they can check it out, they're attacked by the living gargoyle. Or I should say, uh, a living gargoyle. 
Like, this monster is different from Gargola, the actual living gargoyle. Thank you very much. This monster is actually, um, what, there's a dude named the living gargoyle. It's I'm not sure this guy. there is. I don't <laughs> doubt you for a second that there that that name exists to an established character. But so this guy is kind of a bipedial dragon-type monster. But with, and with, like, a beak and short horns and stuff. And But Mind Control Doctor Strange is no mass, match for the beast, so Lilia is forced to remove the Mind Control spell so he can not be killed by the monster. As she does so, though, the gargoyle zaps her with its eye beam. The gargoyle has, has eye beams, by the way. And she's sure. mortally wounded, even as Doctor Strange destroys the monster. He feels bad about it as she's died, but, you know, he's got to check out this book, man. And the book is bad news. Basically, it contains a spell to allow you to travel through time without endangering your present existence. So no paradoxes like at the end of the Defender Avenger War. I feel like the Strange shouldn't care about that at all, though. He kind of just already deals with those as they come. But he doesn't travel through time that much. He doesn't travel through time, really. And it is a worry that you'll, like, erase yourself or something. And this stops this from happening. It's basically like uh, in the Futurama movie, uh, Bender's Big Score. Yeah. Like, Fry's Tattoo is the exact same thing. It lets you, like, go through time without messing up the time stream, basically. <laughs> and that's actually the second time I've referenced that movie in this podcast. Nice. But so it's guilt-free time travel, essentially. And Baron Mordo has already used it. So it's time for Doctor Strange to follow, to stop Mordo from changing time forever. Next issue and next episode, Into the Shadows of Chaos. And that's it for this week. <laughs> so what did you think of the issues this week, Duncan? Uh, the Avengers Defenders War is actually one of the first big multi-issue crossovers that Marvel's ever done. It was so cool. Like, this is iconic comic book sort of narrative, and, and I loved that. And I think, you know, there were some low parts between the clip show and the really racist, misogynistic stuff, but... That just kind of like is is something that we need to address because it's in the times. And in addition to that, you get such cool fights going on between Thor and Hulk, all these random teams teaming up and, and space aliens and crazy battles with Dormammu. It really it hits all of the notes if you're like a Stephen Strange fan and you really enjoy comic book art. I think that that's, it's really exceptional for those. Yeah, there's some really neat stuff going on, both in The Defenders and in Doctor Strange in this period. It's, it's, it's like a, definitely a high point in the, creative, in, in, in the creative lives of these series. Cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. So come back next week for our big 10th episode. I'll be joined by both Duncan and Drew. I'm going to have to fight him for dominance. Or something. As we continue the hunt for Baron Mordo and begin the Sisseneg arc. The Silver Dagger slays, Magneto strikes, the Wrecking Crew sabotages, and the Son of Satan soliloquizes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at strangerbythedozen at gmail.com or interact with the show on Facebook and Instagram at strangerbythedozen, Twitter at strangerbythetwelve, that's strangerbythetwelve, and on Tumblr at strangerbythedozen.tumblr.com. During the week, I'll post a bunch of images and quotes from the issues covered this week, so keep an eye out. You can also get a full visual companion as well as the episodes themselves from strangerbythedozen.com. Stranger by the Dozen is on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and any other podcatching app. And remember, if you leave a five-star review on iTunes, I will read it on the show. Uh, also, this week, I'd like to give a shout-out to the Marvel fan site, supermegamonkey.net. It, along with the Marvel Chronology Project at chronologyproject.com and Doctor Strange fan site, neilalien.com, have been really instrumental in getting a chronology worked out for this show. Now that we're in the 70s, Doctor Strange gets a lot more widespread, and these websites have been key in being able to find the stories he's in beyond just Defenders and Doctor Strange comics. Uh, this is turning out to be a very big project, <laughs> and I'm thankful for all the help I can get. Uh, speaking of which, thank you very much, Duncan, for coming on the show. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Thanks, man. I, you know, you're very welcome. Uh, you can find Duncan on the internet by searching for Duncan Weir, though he isn't the rugby player that comes up first. Also, Dig deeper. <laughs> another way to get in contact with me is just stand outside your house and talk about Gambit. And I will show up if Conrad doesn't just roll up and punch you first. I don't want to talk about Gambit. Yeah. Uh, until next time, faithful listener, I say, life 
The opposite of life is not death, but non-existence. To die means having lived, but to not exist means being nothing. To live means to influence the cosmos. One's actions, one's presence, changes every being he meets. The cosmos is everything. To affect any part of the cosmos is to affect the totality. Life is the most precious gift the cosmos can bestow, and it is the lot of Doctor Strange to preserve the gift. Until next week, my name's Conrad, and this is Stranger by the Dozen. May the Vashanti guide your path.